Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It's the sound of walls being built for a new single-family home. The walls, though, are laying flat on an assembly line in a huge warehouse in Vancouver. It is a production facility for off-site prefabricated homes. Chris Hill is a master builder and partner at B Collective. Pack it up for the end of the day, but this is the framing table where most of the banging occurs. We move down the framing line. Uh, This is where insulation gets installed. It's got a carbon negative score, so our walls are carbon storing, and then our walls are sheathed on the outside and wrapped with a weather-resistant barrier. Finished product looks like this. These panels are uh, ready to go to site. On site, they're installed in about three days. This is a single-family house that's being built in here right now. Much faster, much safer, higher quality product. Very square, solid walls. We have a lot of projects that we're looking for attainable housing, repeatable, so we can really industrialize this process and speed it up through what we're doing. Really trying to find affordable places. This facility is in the heart of Vancouver. We have a 6,500 square foot building here and a full yard, about 77,000 square foot yard that we store our material once it's ready to go out uh, and be shipped to site. Canada needs three and a half million new housing units by 2030, according to CMHC. That's Canada's national housing agency. And so builders and planners are looking to off-site modular construction as one way to build more homes faster. Craig Mitchell is a modular building contractor and consultant with 720 Modular. He's in Vancouver. Craig, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Let's start with a definition. When I say off-site modular construction, what are we talking about? Yeah, sure. So I think maybe the best way to describe this is think of the umbrella term for off-site construction. There's a number of different categories that fall within that umbrella. And one of them is modular construction. Another one that Chris Hill just described there is panelized construction. And then we also have mass timber construction. And all that is under the umbrella of off-site construction. And so modular means what? Modular is what the technical term is volumetric modular construction. So think of a six-sided box, a piece of Lego that gets manufactured in a, in a production facility offsite. You've said in some ways that it's like Ikea, like putting together an Ikea actually. kind of flat pack thing. Explain that to me. Yeah. So modular is, again, it's, it's more of a box. Um, I would say, you know, Chris Hill's form that he's just described is flat packing. So panels that get stacked on a truck, delivered to site and erected. Whereas a modular uh, box is constructed as a six-sided box that gets lifted into place. All six sides are already installed with full plumbing, drywall, paint, right down to towel bars and the walls in the bathroom. It's all installed in on-site in one method. If I was looking at this from outside, paint me a picture of, of what that housing, that modular housing would look like. The modular housing really looks like any other form of construction or, or traditional construction, we call it. And, you know, you've got your standard foundation that gets constructed in the field. 
And then think of these pieces that get delivered on a truck and erected with a crane and lifted onto that foundation. And so where we're seeing modular construction thrive right now is in multifamily construction. So think of these pieces of these big blocks of Lego get installed and um, and stacked on that foundation on site. And then the final wrap up over the next number of months occurs and you put cladding and a roof on it, connect all the interconnections in it and boom, you're open for, you're open for occupancy. How much construction is being done in this way? Well, it's still fairly new in this country. I mean, we're less than 5% of the overall construction volume right now being modular construction at the moment. So still, still has a long way to go to keep up with traditional construction. What are the advantages of it? Yeah, really. I mean, we're talking about the speed of construction. You know, you think of these modules being built in a manufacturing facility on a production line. So it's a lot faster. You know, you're building the foundation at the same time as you're in the factory. So, you know, you're, you've got parallel streams of activity going on. So that's where this real speed comes in. And then you've got cost certainty. You know, every decision is made prior to going into construction. So you've already selected all your materials and um, you're, you're ready to go. And then you've got, you know, the quality of a of a offsite construction facility. There's environmental benefits. There's less waste in the facility, so you don't see large dumpsters on a, you know, in in that facility. You know, there's material optimization, and of course, you've even got worker safety too. Those are a lot of the benefits of uh, going to offsite offsite construction. I said in the introduction that we need to build as a nation three and a half million housing units by 2030. That's not very far off. How can this help us get there? You heard Chris Hill say. He used that phrase, attainable and repeatable housing. Yeah, correct. I think we really need to start looking at standardization of some of our housing, you know, and and not, that doesn't mean that all housing has to look the same. And uh, I think that's what people often think about, you know, but the I'll call it the guts of the building, the structure, you know, a one bedroom and a two bedroom, you know, housing unit inside probably looks the same, but maybe on the outside, you use different cladding and different materials to, you know, adapt to, you know, the different neighborhoods, but the the guts of the building itself and the structure, you know, that's what we're trying to standardize and trying to accelerate housing. Because right now in traditional construction, mm. every single building is a snowflake, I like to say. It's uh, every single building that we build is unique. And we need to start, start moving away from that toward an industrialized housing strategy. When you're building, one of the things, when we're trying to get to those three and a half million houses, one of the things that we know could be an impediment are labor issues, that we don't have enough skilled labor to help meet that goal. What happens with this kind of housing and and the labor shortage that we're facing? It is a problem for sure. And, you know, as we start seeing housing starting to move offsite into a manufacturing facility, now you're starting to use... Um, technology, you know, we're starting to use robotics, we're starting to use, you know, wall lines that use automation and things like that. So you decrease your reliance on on heavy lifting labor. And, you know, in a manufacturing facility, we're asking people to do tasks. So it's task driven activities, similar to, you know, automotive assembly lines. So you actually have greater breadth of a workforce rather than having a skilled labor that has been purely trained in construction, now you can start going outside the construction industry to try and find labor to work in a manufacturing facility. So there's plenty of opportunity, you know, in the future here to to bring people into house building mm. that, have, that have never been on a construction site. What sort of projects have you been involved in? 
Yeah, during my career, uh, been well over 20 plus years now, and uh, I've done everything from hospitality, hotel, modular hotel projects to uh, care facilities to multifamily residential, going back to, uh, you know, even industrial workforce camps, uh, you know, back, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But I'd say most of the trend right now on the projects I'm working on at the moment is all multifamily affordable housing. But again, and just the last point on this, when you say industrial workforce camps, people might think of, for example, um, in the north of Alberta at, at oil sands projects and what have you, that when those sites are developed and you need housing for people who are going to be flown into work, that you create this sort of housing. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah, and that's that's the I think that's the misnomer is that that was the old type of modular housing that this country grew up on. Mm. And it's less of that now and more of what we're seeing as the new form of modular construction, which is that multifamily residential housing is really, that's the trend at the moment. So let's talk about how this is happening across the country. Stay on the line with us because I'm going to bring a couple of other people into the discussion who are doing this work. Enda McDonough is an architectural technician, principal at Montgomery Sizem Architects. He's with me in our studio in Toronto. Good morning to you. Good morning. Tell me about the modular housing projects that you've been working on in the city of Toronto. What are they? So they're uh, supportive housing projects as part of the Rapid Housing Initiative uh, through CMHC. Um, we're working with the Housing Secretariat and City of Toronto to deliver the projects. We first started working on them, uh, I'll call it phase one of these projects, were rolled out in 2020, just at the start of the pandemic when a lot of people would have seen uh, on the streets some of the homelessness issues and uh, lack of shelter spaces that existed across the city. At that time, we delivered, I think it was 100 units uh, within an eight-month period. So we were really able to, you know, from the time that the project arrived on our desk to the time that uh, the spaces were ready for people to move in was eight months. And then phase two, which were, is currently active at the moment, um, started, I believe, in 2022. And uh, we've had a, a large team working actively on those projects. Uh, in total, there's five of them. Uh, two of them have uh, already obtained occupancy mm. and uh, more to complete. You uh, mentioned shelters, I mean, and the overflowing shelters in the city of Toronto, but also there has been uh, an issue because there's nowhere to go of, of uh, encampments popping up um, in some communities. Were these projects meant to address those I think a variety of, uh, there was a variety of kind of problems that they were addressing or issues that they were addressing. So um, it was the overflow of shelters. Mm. It was dealing with uh, some of the people in the encampments and um, additionally, people who have experienced homelessness for very, very long periods of time. What do you get when you create one of these units? What, is, what does it look like? It's a studio, essentially, a studio apartment. So it has a, a full washroom, a kitchenette, um, with uh, oven, say, and cooktop, fridge, microwave, uh, the sink, and then uh, separate to that, uh, it has a bed, a club or lounge chair, a dining space for two. You know, in the city of Toronto, where there's a, there's a lot of pressures on the, the scale of uh, yeah. apartments and units, it kind of meets all the demands. Where do they go? I mean, where do you, I mean, one of the things in the city of Toronto is trying to find land to build housing. Where are you putting these units? Yeah, so a lot of the properties are city-owned properties, and there's a, a test fit phase to see if they're appropriate for modular. Not every site is, uh, depending on the constraints around the site, the delivery methods for modular and uh, um, also optimization for modular as well. You said that you could build, uh, you built 100 units in eight months? Yes. Yeah, it was a, 
It was a frenetic eight months. Well, I was going to say, that's a real clip. And if you think of traditional construction, would it, would it be possible to build 100 units in eight months? You know, I think uh, the modular has, uh, you know, is able to solve an awful lot of problems in terms of construction. I think uh, a lot of the, um, with a project like that, there was um, a lot of effort on behalf of the modular builders and ourselves and uh, a lot of other consultants. Um, but equally, there was a lot of backing from the city right up to the mayor's office to deliver those projects. And this was meant to be a rapid response to Ra a crisis. Rapid response to a crisis. And I think uh, when you think of a traditional project that perhaps also had the same supports, yeah, I think it would be very difficult, but but the possibilities are there. There's, there's, you know, so this is modular. You know, when we think of the uh, rapid housing initiative, uh, modular is, is a fantastic way to meet those demands. But uh, there, there's, there's a variety of options available. What about the cost? How does the cost compare to the traditional way of designing and building housing? So uh, there's, um, I think there's trade-offs. Uh, we're seeing, say, the cost per unit being more expensive, but the scheduled delivery time offering savings compared to a traditional build project. So... Uh, you know, in the main, it's probably not a wash. It's probably still a little bit of a premium for modular, mm. but it does give you that that rapid delivery. Craig Mitchell, you've been listening. Why is it still costly, so costly to do this? Is there a way to bring those costs down? Yes, absolutely. And yeah, I know I appreciate those comments from Enda. Um, the cost right now is more expensive. I mean, we there's more material cost in modular construction right now. Think of, you know, you're, you've got doubled up uh, assemblies. You know, you've got a ceiling and then you've got a flooring that is then stacked on top of that. And then you've also got a delivery on transport and a craning cost that traditional construction doesn't have. And so, you know, what we're seeing right now is we're, this is very early days in this country for the growth of modular construction. And so the overall processes in the factory that we're seeing right now, maybe aren't as efficient as what we're seeing in other places in the world, such as Europe or Singapore or Japan, those those places that have perfected uh, modular construction techniques. And so uh, I think we're still early days, and that's why the costs you're seeing are a little bit higher than traditional construction at the moment. What's the opportunity here? And uh, when you take a look at at the housing crisis that's happening right across this country, we speak with people every day, it seems like coast to coast to coast who are dealing with this. Could this be used more widely? You're dealing with a very specific thing, but could this be used more widely to help alleviate? Very much so. There's a variety of different options from panelized modular, volumetric modular, uh, mass timber. Each of these uh, separate methods of delivery can deliver extremely quickly and can deliver really interesting designs as well. Does quick, yeah, that's the other thing. Does quick mean that you're getting... It's no slight against Ikea, but people will hear that and they'll think you're putting together your Ikea shelf. It's a lot different than somebody who comes, a woodworker who's going to build you a shelf in your home that's going to last for generations. Are you getting something of lower quality or lesser quality because you're able to put it together quickly? No, and I think probably there's there's two aspects to that. One is the technical side and uh, the quality associated with that, and the other is the design side. Um, from a design point of view, um, 
you know, what we look at uh, when a, a modular project arrives in our office is the constraints that exist within volumetric modular as an example. And you take that challenge in the same way you would a very difficult site to work with. Uh, to find something interesting that you can do with a small space. That you, you can work and you look at the context uh, up and down the street in the neighborhood and you make a building, uh, craft a design that, that fits that context that works for that site. And that's available in all of the different modular options. Um, so I, you know, I do believe that it's a, it's a fantastic solution to some of the issues that we have right now in terms of needing housing fast. And just thinking differently about housing and how we build housing. Well, very much thinking differently about how we build housing. And I think um, one of the major aspects to that, I think, is, is, as you mentioned earlier, the labor shortage, worker safety, points like that. To be able to construct in a controlled environment is to be able to really take advantage of a year-round construction mm. where we often see significant slowdowns on sites in winter. Because this, you're in a warehouse, you could just put the houses together. You, you just keep going. Uh, you're, you're, you're building the, the third floor while someone's constructing the foundation. And normally you have to wait for the first and the second to get built before you can get the third. So it's just, uh, it's interesting from mm. that point of view that it, it's able to keep flowing through the facility in a controlled environment. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theories. On December 15, 2017, Canadian billionaires Honey and Barry Sherman were found dead in their mansion. To this day, the case remains unsolved. Counterfeit and uh, copied pharmaceuticals was much more lucrative than heroin, cocaine and the rest of it. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Listen to the no good, terribly kind, wonderful lives and tragic deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman wherever you get your podcasts. Let me bring this last voice into our discussion. Alex Boston is an urban planner and housing and land use consultant, also in Vancouver. Alex, good morning to you. Good morning, Matt. Based on what you have heard, but also what you know about this form of, of housing, is off-site modular housing, is that a solution in some ways to the housing crisis that we're facing? Matt, we do not have a choice. We have to transition to off-site construction. There's a lot of growing pains in the sector right now, and there's a lot of painful policies and practices that are hostile to off-site construction. We have to iron out these problems, and it's the only way that we're going to solve our housing crisis. And we ain't seen nothing yet. We have about a million and a half people that are in the construction sector in Canada, and that construction labor force has grown Almost in time with the population, it started to slow. And that's something that happened with COVID. We lost a whole bunch of people during COVID, during construction. And it's one of the drivers of our current housing crisis. Over the next 50, 10 years, Matt, we are going to see 15% population growth. And we're going to flatline in our construction labor force. Because we're going to lose 250,000 people to mm -hmm. retirement. So if we don't amp up productivity, our housing crisis is just going to get worse. And this requires, you know, a full court press by every level of government. Right. And Enda said something really important, which is they had a facilitator um, in the city of Toronto helping them through the process. That is where we need to start. But we have to transform policies and practices that inadvertently make off-site construction really difficult. You said, you said, you used the word hostile to describe some of those policies and 
practices. Where's the hostility to building this sort of housing quickly? So when um, Craig, for example, mentioned that, uh, you know, he can start excavation and foundation and at the same time get the assembly line starting to roll. Well, in the current uh, building permitting and development permitting process, you don't issue a building permit until your excavation and foundation is complete. We have to accelerate permitting so that you can actually really get those cost and time efficiencies. One of the biggest drivers of higher costs for early movers in this space is permitting delays. Mm. And it's just because permitting has been designed for on-site construction. What about the stigma, Enda, that might surround these sorts of houses? That that one of the things that people who might hear about this say, well, I, I like you know the, the look and the feel of my neighborhood, and this is going to make my neighborhood feel differently. It's going to make my neighborhood look differently. What kind of response did you get to communities where this sort of housing was built? I think that comes back to the the design discussion that um, you really have to look at uh, the the context of the neighborhood and the materials you choose. Um, you're not limited by the materials you choose for cladding, and that gives itself inherently. There's some flexibility to that in terms of uh, how you clad the building and how you design the building. Did you get any pushback? Have you had any pushback from communities when this sort of housing goes in? We've uh, had very good community engagement generally. There's been, um, you know, a lot of concern that I think was resolved generally with uh, providing the right information. And the concern was what? I think uh, the concern was around, not necessarily around uh, modular, but just around the... um, uh, the the folks that were coming into the community because it's supportive housing because in some it's ways. supportive housing. Right. But for example, we had a project uh, up on uh, Trenton Avenue where the community prepared um, really nice uh, welcome baskets and uh, did everything they could ultimately to to bring those folks into the community mm. and uh, help them integrate. So, Alex, you were going to say. I mean, when you think of the stigma that surrounds modular housing, what kind of role does that play in 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 preventing more of it from being built? It definitely exists. And at the same time, what we find across the country, you can find off-site built uh, residential at every single price point from high-end luxury to um, the rapid modular um, supportive housing that End has been involved with most recently. And, you know, in that high-end luxury I know developers, they have got their supply lines figured out. They know what municipalities they can work with that have amended their permitting process. And they are delivering um, high-end units at below the cost of an equivalent product Mm. um, that's out there by other developers. And this is something that happens when we go in this market transformation process with these early um, movers having to, to struggle through. They certainly had higher costs up front, um, but they're starting to reap the war- rewards now. One of the things we need from a policy environment is levels of government to help buy down the risk so it's more attractive for builders and developers to move into this space. Just We're just about out of time, but you said, and we'll, we'll wrap with this point, you said, Alex, that we don't really have an option, that this has to be one of the things that we embrace as a nation if we're going to build the number of homes that we need um, so that people have, have somewhere to live. What has to happen to make that 
to make that unfold? Alex, just briefly. There has to be a decisive commitment by every level of government to amend existing practices. And I'm going to give a great example. Metro Vancouver is working with more than a half dozen member municipalities out here to actually do what I call the transformative PPP. It's pre-zone and pre-approved prefab. And it doesn't mean that necessarily has to be built on an assembly line. It could be built traditionally on-site, but it levels the playing field. Mm. It expedites the entire process. And we need uh, interventions like that by every level of government to ensure that policies and practices not only level the playing field for off-site, but tilt it in favor of off-site. Craig, you're doing this work. What has to be done to, uh, to Alex's point, tilt it uh, in your direction? Yeah, I just believe there has to be more collaboration amongst all parties right through the entire building process, uh, right from the contractor at the table to the developer, the consultant team, just like Enda on the uh, architectural side and get people talking together to accelerate timelines if we're ever going to have a chance at building the housing we need. Enda, just finally. Yeah, I think uh, continuing the innovation that happens. Uh, there's many, many different uh, modular types from, say, just modularizing the bathrooms or looking at a kit of parts that can assemble a building that are happening overseas that are slowly uh, making their way here. And it's about being open to those methods as well as the, the systems that we're doing very well in the country right now and just making sure that we're utilizing every tool available to, to produce as, men, as much housing as possible. We don't really have a choice otherwise. Don't have a choice. We just have to use everything that's available. Great to talk to you all about this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very Thanks, much. Matt. Craig Mitchell is a contractor and offsite construction consultant, Alex Boston, urban planner and housing and land use consultant. And Enda McDonough is an architectural technician and principal at Montgomery Sizem Architects. Your thoughts on this welcome? You can email us at current at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.